Hi, everybody. I'm speaking to you today from the stage of an opera house at the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York City. A warning to listeners that there is mild cursing throughout this hour and on the podcast. We're not going to beep that. And I'm here on an opera house stage with a story that is so small, it almost feels wrong to tell it in a room this grand. It's actually about a real opera singer, not a super famous opera singer or anything like that. Karen Guilfrey makes about half of her living singing. The other half, she makes recording audiobooks. And about a year ago, she was staying at a hotel, and she had a deadline on this children's book that she was supposed to be recording, and the hotel room was kind of noisy. She was hearing a lot of noise from the street. And so she looked around for a quiet place, and she went into the closet, put pillows all around to deaden the sound, sat on the floor with a microphone, and then the cord of the microphone uh, went under the door of the closet out to her laptop, because her laptop had a fan that made noise. And so she closes the door, so it's pitch dark, except for the light from her iPad, which had the text of the book that she was supposed to read. And she began. The Exciting Exploits of an Effervescent Elf. Written by Tricia Sugarek and narrated by Karin Gilfrey. Chapter 1. Where is Emma? The enchanted forest was deep and green and splashed with... Can I just say, wouldn't it be incredible if I just now played you the entire audiobook? <laughs> <laughs> you paid like 85 bucks for those seats, right? <laughs> Actually, I can't play you the whole audiobook because Karen gets exactly like two and a half sentences into this book and she stumbles on a word and she decides, oh wait, I'll just, I'll just start again. I'll just start from the beginning. So she gets up to go out of the closet and start the tape again, start the recording again. And uh, she tries to get out of the closet. And she discovers that she's locked in. <laughs> oh my God. Seriously. The guard told me at first she thought, like, this isn't going to be that hard, right? After all, she has the iPad, there's Wi Fi, she could call the front desk on Skype, right? And there was a problem. This Wi Fi was like half of one bar, and it kept just cutting out. But I found the hotel number. This, of course, is on the recording. 212-661-9600. I dialed it. Thank you for calling the Roosevelt Hotel. Please listen carefully to the following options. For additional information about the hotel, please visit our website. And then, of course, it's like the longest hotel phone menu ever. For sales and catering services, press 3. For accounting, press 4. For the Human Resources Office, press 5. And I'm like trying to press 0 to get to the operator. And I'm thinking the Wi-Fi is going to cut out at any moment. So I'm listening to like this giant long menu and finally I hear... If at any time you wish to speak to an operator, press 8. So I press 8. Reservations, may I speak and may assist you? Hi, I'm actually in room 1136. Hello. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yeah. Fuck! <laughs> After that, there's seven minutes of silence on the recording, just like total silence. Nothing happens except every now and then, Karen just laughs to herself. <laughs> that happens 
one minute and 48 seconds after the phone call. Then it's quiet. There's no other sound for 44 seconds. And then on the recording, you hear... <laughs> now and then she tries the door handle again, thinking she told me later, you know, this can't really be true. Like, this can't... There's got to be a way this is going to work. One wall of the closet has the hallway on the other side. And 18 minutes after Karen locks herself in, she hears people. She hears some German tourists walking towards her down the hall. Unfortunately, she actually has the skills for this very situation. Hallo, können Sie mich helfen? Hallo. Hallo, ich brauche Hilfe. Können Sie mich helfen? Can someone help me? Germans come to the door of the room, they whisper to each other for a little bit, and then they do nothing. Hello? <laughs> her husband is out on an audition, he's also a singer, and his phone was turned off. She texts her mom, here's nothing back. She phones her mom, and right then, somebody taps on the door of the hotel room and calls through it. Are you okay? Yes, please, come in. <laughs> Can you come to the door, the person asks. I can't. I'm, I'm stuck in the closet. <laughs> Hello. In the closet right here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm an audiobook narrator, and I was trying to narrate a book. <laughs> Karen knows it's a really weird thing to say to somebody as you're getting rescued, but she just couldn't help herself. Nobody wants to look like a nut, you know? Apparently, the Germans went and they found this very sweet Jamaican housekeeper, and 22 minutes after Karen was locked in, the housekeeper set her free. God, I was so happy to see her. And she was so nice. Oh, my gosh. She was so nice. I know this is a weird question, but, like, is it appropriate to tip in a situation like that? <laughs> I didn't think of it then. Now, Karen, remember, she's just an opera singer, right? And operas are all about spectacle. You know, it's 80 people on the stage and horses and love and vengeance and big, grand feelings. It, was really, it would really be hard to get further from that to what happened to her in that closet, right? Where all the action takes place in a space not much bigger than your body. It is the simplest plot imaginable. There's literally no movement in this plot. If someone were to stage this as an opera... How would that go? <laughs> um, it might be minimalist music, actually. Oh, right. Like just a repeating theme over and over and over again with me yelling help. And, you know, people say those kinds of things in interviews, and then I'll put that quote at the end of the story, and it makes for a nice ending, put a little plinky music under it, and maybe you've heard our show. But when we did this interview, like, three or four weeks ago, I realized, oh, wait a second, for once in my life, I don't have to let this story stop here. I am actually going to be in an opera house very soon. I can reach higher with this. I can take this to the next logical step, the step it never gets you, the step you need an opera house for. <laughs> and it turns out I actually have a hookup for the kind of music that Karin is talking about. Some of you may know this. I have a cousin. His name is Philip Glass. 
Nazism. Written a number of minimalist operas. They've been performed here on this very stage since the 1980s. I'd stand on the beach just this past fall, and so I called Philip, and he sat down to write. And so today, right now, I am pleased to present here on the Brooklyn Academy of Music Opera House stage the world premiere of his latest opera. I am not joking. This opera is called Help. Commissioned for our program today on the BAM Opera House stage, his work is played by orchestras all over the world. Please welcome Philip Glass. And to perform this with him, Jonathan Dinklage on violin, Emily Brauza on cello, and of course, the woman this is all about, Karen Guilfrey, mezzo-soprano. Karen. Jonathan English, Emily Brassa, and Philip Glass. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I'm Ira Glass. Ladies and gentlemen, for decades, the Brooklyn Academy of Music has been a home for all sorts of new kinds of theater and dance and music and opera. And when they invited our program to perform here today, we wanted to live up to that tradition by trying to invent something new. And so what you're in for today is true stories. It's journalism like we always do, but presented as radio drama. And we think these are radio dramas like you have never heard before. We have journalism turned into opera, into a full-on Broadway musical. We have journalism turned into a play that is structured like a radio documentary. The fact is there are so many ways you can tell a true story. There are so, so many ways. And today, instead of just applying the tools of journalism to everyday stories like we usually do, we try to harness the full power of music and theater. Like Karen's story. We are not done with Karen's story. Sure, you could do it as a minimalist opera, but what if you wanted to stage it as like kind of an old school opera opera, the kind that they take you on field trips to when you're a kid? Like, what would that be? I asked Karen in our interview, and she was game to speculate. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, as a whole opera, I mean, opera is long. 
maybe maybe the elves from the book would come and prance around and sing about the enchanted forest. That was the book I was narrating. <laughs> you would need more than elves in this story like also you would want the people the people walking around the closet the german people there could be you know a, a just got to new york aria sung in german <laughs> <laughs> um, actually what they're singing is we have just arrived the air is dirty and smoggy Auf Deutsch, das muss ich in Zweifel ziehen. Das ist ja möglich, hypothetisch. Wir sind alle unalphabetisch. Ich bin in meinem Schrank, ich bin in meinem Schrank, alle geschlossen. I don't know if you caught the German there. One of the tourists says, I think someone called for help in German. And the other one says, impossible. <laughs> Everyone in this country is illiterate. <laughs> then there's the front desk lady. You know, the one that Karen calls from her iPad. Right. It could be funny if she was like, oh, my life is so boring. You know, I just answer this phone all day and people ask for room service. You know, you do a cutaway. I'm stuck in the closet and... Finally, this is her big moment, and she doesn't even know it. Oh, it's so boring. It's boring as can be. It's boring to sit behind this desk. It's boring to be me. Are you there? Can you hear me? Then there's the husband. In this version of the story, we could actually see him out on his audition, belting his heart out, oblivious to the pain that his wife is going through. So maybe we could incorporate some kind of famous baritone aria. I wonder, like, what would be the most appropriate and ironic aria for him to be singing? Oh, I don't know. Something about love, I'm sure. Or something about being a rescuer. We actually talked about what would be best, and we finally settled on a scene from Rigoletto where the title character who loves his daughter 
more than anything in the world, rages against courtiers who have locked her up in a tiny room. <laughs> open up that door, he sings. Open up. Nulla in terra più l'uomo avventa se dei figli diventa l'onor quella porta assassini assassini ma aprite la porta la porta assassini ma aprite God, that was great. <laughs> Karin will be so proud of me. Of course, the climax of her opera arrives with the entrance of the housekeeper. What should she be like in the opera version of this story? Um, gosh, I mean, maybe she just rescues people all day. <laughs> maybe somebody's having a baby and she delivers a baby and then she cleans up after it and like she saves a guy who's out on a leg she gets him to come inside yeah. or Trapped in the Closet was composed by Matt O'Coin music direction and keyboards by William Hobbs it featured Rachel Feldstein, Candace Hoyes and Sarah Kraft as elves Marnie Breckenridge as the front desk 
Adrian Rosas as the husband, Janine Debeek as the housekeeper, Rod Guilfrey, who's actually Karen's dad, as the German tourist with Heather Buck, <laughs> and mezzo-soprano Karen Guilfrey as herself. Which brings us to Act One. Act One, 21 Chump Street, the musical. I've always, um, I've always wondered what it would mean to try one of our radio stories as a musical. You know, I, I was taken to so many musicals as a kid, and I think because of that, my basic sense of what makes a satisfying story actually comes from musicals, much more than from, from TV or movies. If you think about, like, the classic old musicals, Fiddler on the Roof or even Chorus Line, it's like they're funny at the beginning, and then there's something really emotional, and they're about some bigger idea. They take you into this world. I just, I just love that. And um, so what you're about to hear is our first attempt at a musical based on journalism. Probably 70 to 80 percent of what you're about to hear is verbatim quotes from interviews. The rest is artistic invention. I'll say that up front. Um, It's based on a true story you may remember from our radio program. Back in May 2011 at a bunch of high schools in Palm Beach County, Florida, a group of young police officers were sent undercover to pose as students. They went to classes. They ate in the cafeteria. They had fake Facebook accounts, of course. Um, there had been complaints about drugs being sold at these schools. That's what they were there to deal with. And what happened next in this one school was transformed into a musical by a team of people who usually do this on Broadway. Pretty much everybody involved in this, the cast, the chorus, the musicians, the director, Michael Mayer, all from Broadway. Words and music are by Lynn manuel Miranda. Probably best known. Probably best known for writing and starring in In the Heights. Uh, He will be your narrator. The plan was called Operation D-, and one of the schools included in the plan was Park Vista Community High School, where a kid named Justin LeBoy... That's me! An 18-year-old honor roll student... I guess straight A's, man! ...was in the last semester of his senior year. Justin could hardly believe his luck when a very pretty girl showed up. Naomi! Not one, but two of his classes. Naomi. She sat in front of him. He switched seats. Naomi. The last name she used was Rodriguez. Justin, what drew you to Naomi initially? Man, she used to fall asleep in class. She was a light skinned. Puerto Rican, Dominican, long hair, mature in a body like, whoa, like, whoa. That's not the only reason I like her, though. She said she moved with her mother to Florida from New York, where dreams are made. Well, so did I. So I said hi. She seemed mature, and I talked more. And I was like, what the heck I gotta do to be with you? What the heck I gotta do? What the heck I gotta do to be with you? What the heck I gotta do? Tell me who I gotta be for you to be with me. You told her all this in class? Well, yeah. I texted her, you know. I was like, what the heck I gotta do to be with you? Hello, 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 hello. What the heck I gotta do to be with you? R-O-F-L-O-L Tell me who I gotta be For you to be with me 
smiley face? Yes! Next thing you know, we're texting day and night. I trust her right away. Like, whoa. Hey, yo, I never met anyone like her, bro. Yo, she listens to all my problems. I let her copy all my homework. And then I lay it all on the line. And she was like, no, no, no. She didn't say no exactly. I don't know. No, no, no. Yeah, I was surprised. I'm a pretty great guy. So, so, so I decided I needed to step my game up. Oh, 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 oh. It's too late to be shy. So I got in front of the whole class one day. And I serenaded her. I was like, what the heck I gotta do? What the heck I gotta do? What the heck I gotta do to be with you? What the heck I gotta do? Tell me who I gotta be for you to go to prom with me. You asked her to the prom? Yeah, I danced and everything. Naomi, I know there's a reason you were transferred here to me. It's destiny. Naomi, you know me. Will you go to prom with me? I'll think about it. She'll 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 think about it. Yes! I didn't say yes. I didn't say I'll think about it. I can't tell you my real name. But yes, I can confirm that I did get asked to the prom. The undercover officer who posed as Naomi is 25 years old, a new recruit with the Palm Beach Police Force. My assignment, to pose as a senior and find out who's buying, who's selling. Mostly pills and weed, you would not believe how easy it is to get pills and weed. What's the hardest part? The cafeteria. Imagine hundreds of teenagers yelling and running full speed. And the lack of deodorant. Let's just say I would drink at the end of the day. <laughs> Seriously, these kids need to learn there are consequences in life. If I'm doing my job and I'm doing it right, I am making life safer one school at a time. So we asked you to prom. Right. I gave every excuse. I said it's too expensive, which is totally true, by the way. I told him, look, I'm just a transfer. I wouldn't feel comfortable with all your friends. And it's true, you make friends on the job that it ends. You meet kids who are sensitive, smart, and defenseless. Those are the ones you remember. The ones that you think about after you're gone. Seriously, these kids need to learn there are consequences in life. If I'm doing my job and I'm doing it right, I am making life safer one school at a time. Meanwhile, what the heck I gotta do to be with you? What the heck I gotta do? Tell me who I gotta be For you to be with me Do you smoke? What? You smoke weed? 
no, I don't. But if that's what you need, I can find some for you. I can be your supply. You would do that for me. I can be your guide. Oh. Seriously, these kids yes. need to learn there are no. consequences in life. If I'm doing my job and I'm doing it right, I am making life safer one school at a time. Listen. I'm not a drug dealer, so it's not like she asked me this day and I got it for her the very next day. It took me a while, you know. So I mean, I'm trying to get it and I can't get it. What are you thinking as you're trying to get this pot to sell her? I'm thinking, what the heck am I doing? I've never done this before, so I'm, you know, I'm really scared and skeptical at the same point. What did you end up doing? I called a cousin who called a cousin who called his friend who called a couple dozen cousins 'cause it doesn't end. My cousin Justin's looking for a little something, something for a certain someone, some girl he wants to be touching. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. We were just discussing our cousin Justin. Wasn't Justin the cousin who just made the honor roll? Got the colleges buzzing. Are we close to our cousin Justin? Are we supposed to trust him? Are we thugs? You are cousin Justin. We don't sell drugs. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Did you get it yet? No, I'm about to get it. Is your dealer a student? I got you, girl. Don't sweat it. Let me know when you got it. Soon as I can, I'll find a way to repay you, Justin. Oh man! Yo, what is up with this fussing? This isn't up for discussion. This is our cousin coming to us. He's our blood, and we love him. Ah, look at Justin. He blushing. Our little Justin is crushing. Sorry for rushing the judgment. Why should we get you these drugs? Love. What? Only if you believe in love. My cousin, 25 ducats. I'm sweating buckets. He hands me a sandwich bag with some little green nuggets. I got it for you. XO, cool. You want it now? See you at school. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Everybody's got a cousin who can hook them up with something. Now, according to the police, Justin is a drug dealer. Maybe Justin didn't know where to get drugs. Maybe he did. What we know is this. The next day, Justin brought a rolled-up baggie of marijuana to school for Naomi, and I was like, "Oh my God, I'm actually about to do this!" So we was in class, and I sat down right next to her, and she was like, "Justin, do you have it?" Yeah, I do. And I was like, "You know what? We're gonna wait for a few, 'cause I didn't want to be like, 'Oh hey,' and just slot it in her hand or whatever." So we waited. And she was like, "Okay, put it in my purse." So I slid it right in there, and then she was like, "Okay, here, take the money." 
Justin, here, take the money. I don't want your money. I got this just for you. Keep your money. There's nothing I won't do for you. I'll come through for you every time. Just in time. Justin, listen, please just take the money. Naomi, I know there's a reason you were You're making me feel guilty. Me. Take the money. Naomi, I know there's a reason this is you a really did to me. Naomi, you know only me. one last thing you need just in time. Do for me. Take Anytime. the money. Take Anytime. the money. Justin would later find out it's a felony in Florida to sell marijuana. And the penalty is even harsher for selling it on school property. By taking the money, Justin had made an irreversibly bad decision. And since he was over 18, he was legally an adult when he made it. Seriously, these kids need to learn there are consequences in life. I am doing my job. I am doing it right. I am making life safer one school at a time. In May, the police arrested 31 students at several schools. Justin was one of them. Freeze! You have the right to remain silent! Everybody who sold drugs to undercover cops is busted! Everybody who sold drugs to undercover cops is busted! Everybody who sold drugs to undercover cops is busted! Everybody who sold drugs to undercover cops is busted! He spent a week in jail wondering what would happen next. It's your word against hers, the cops have every text. The cops have every text, the cops have every text. Don't worry girl, I got the stuff, I got you. He knew he'd lose in court, he had to take a plea. Three years probation, I pled guilty to the felony. What? A felony? A nickel bag's a felony. What? Justin, say goodbye to college, they got you. These kids need to wake up. I don't want to go too much into it, but drugs hit really close to home for me. Saw the effects growing up of cocaine, marijuana, ecstasy. With family members? Yes. I've seen what it can do to a family. That's all I want to say about it. Do you wish someone like you had done this type of work? Yes. And I hope someone like me keeps doing it. Still. There are kids you remember. The ones that you think about after you're gone. During the week he spent in jail, Justin couldn't help but think about Naomi. She was a light-skinned, Puerto Rican, Dominican, long hair, mature in the body like, whoa. That's not the only reason I liked her, though. Yo, if it had been a guy that came up to me asking me for drugs, I would have said no. I would have said, get out of my face. I don't hang out with people like that. It's because it was her. Have you talked to her since all of this happened? No. I would love to. I would love to have that conversation. What do you think you would say? I would say, what the heck did you do? What the heck did you do? Naomi. 
Our cast, Lindsay Mendez as Naomi, Anthony Ramos as Justin, the chorus, Alex Boniello, Gerard Canonico, and Antoine Holly, our narrator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who also wrote the words and composed the music, the musicians, music director, Ben Cohen, Sean McDaniel, Mark Vanderpoel, David Cinquangrana, Jonathan Dinklage, Emily Browza, with Scott Wasserman. To everybody who is actually listening to this right now on the radio or podcast, I should say the staging of this story was like a 14-minute non-stop dance number from start to finish, <laughs> choreographed by Lauren Lotaro. Costumes, sets, lots of laughs. <laughs> lots of laughs in today's show are visual things that you are not seeing because you are hearing it only. If you would like to see what you are missing, you can do that. You can do that right this second. You can download video of this entire show that we're doing today at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Go to our website, thisamericanlife.org. Like Beyonce, we are dropping the album and all the videos on the same day. She's a role model. We also have links to where you can get the official cast album recording of 21 Chump Street, the musical. (laughs) Possibly the shortest cast album recording in Broadway history. (laughs) Coming up, Mike Birbiglia and the secret jokes a professional comedian usually only shares at home. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our program, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today, from the stage of the Brooklyn Academy of Music in Brooklyn, New York City, the radio drama episode. We have journalism, memoir, true stories staged as radio drama. We have arrived at Act Two of our show, Act Two of Mice and Men. So this next bit of radio drama is not an experiment for us like a musical or an opera. We thought it would be smart to have one story in today's show where we know what we're doing. (laughs) A type of radio drama we actually bring you now and then on the program, a true story told on stage by the person that it actually happened to. Please welcome comedian Mike Birbiglia. Pretty easy following a musical. <laughs> I, uh, I think that my favorite thing about uh, being married is actually that you can share jokes uh, with your uh, wife or husband that are funny to you and that person and no one else other than maybe your cat. Because uh, when you have a cat, your barometer for humor <laughs> out the window. Uh, 
Last summer, my wife and I went on a trip to Massachusetts, and, and I called it Catsachusetts, <laughs> which is not funny, <laughs> but in our house, was the joke of the year. <laughs> I was like, we're going to Catsachusetts. My wife is like, ah! I was like, ah! Our cat was like, ah! Everyone loves a good pun when you have a cat, and so... <laughs> so we drive to Massachusetts, and when we arrive, my wife has a headache, and she asks me if I will acclimate Ivan, that's our cat, to the bedroom, because you can't just put an indoor cat into a house, because he'll explode. <laughs> and so I bring him in the bedroom, but I'm so tired from the drive that I fall asleep, which is the only thing you cannot do when acclimating an indoor cat to a house. And so I wake up an hour later, Ivan is gone. He got out. And so now I'm running around the house. I'm like, I'm, you know, my cat's going to explode. I wake up my wife. I say, Chloe, her name's Jen. I say, Mr. Fantastic is gone. His name's Ivan. And Chloe gave me a look that I can only describe as divorce eyes. Because before that point, I was convinced that we would be married forever. And then once I saw the divorce eyes, I was like, oh, I guess this could end. And, and if it ended, it would look a lot like that. And so now, the two of us are running around the house. I'm like, my marriage is falling apart. My cat's going to explode. And we find Ivan, but we had another major problem in the house, which is that there were mice in the house. <laughs> And they were, it was actually worse than that, because they were, they were parasitic mice. They have what's called toxoplasmosis, which means they have a... Yeah, you might know what this is. They have a parasite in them, and as a result, they're unafraid of cats, and they're unafraid of people. And the way we discovered this was that my wife was watching TV, and she looked next to her, and there was a mouse. And he was watching TV also. <laughs> and she screamed, and he just looked up at her like Stuart Little, like, hey, what's going on? I don't like this show either. I don't know why all those women would want to marry that one guy. And then she pushed him off the couch, and he didn't even run away. He didn't even scurry, which is a verb invented for mice. <laughs> he just walked into the kitchen like a roommate, like, fine. <laughs> I'll go in the other room. I just think you're overreacting. <laughs> and then he did a confessional into the mouse cam in the kitchen. He was like, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to win. <laughs> I was here before they came. I'll be here when they're gone. I'm a mouse. <laughs> That's from Real Mouse Lives of Catsachusetts. That night, I'm, I'm sound asleep, and my wife wakes me up by grabbing my face. <laughs> She says, Mo, my name's Mike. <laughs> Mr. Fantastic found the mouse 
you need to get the mouse. And I sit up and I say, Chloe, we have a cat. We do everything for the cat. We give him food. We give him an apartment that he thinks is the world. (laughs) We set aside an area in the apartment for him to poop in that we clean more often than the area where we poop. (laughs) We have a gentleman's agreement (laughs) that in the unlikely event, that a mouse should walk in that door. Now he will kill that mouse. And we will never speak of that mouse again. And he will be protected. That's from Catfather. My wife says, Mo, get the mouse. And I sit up and I see what may be the strangest tableau I will ever witness in my entire life. Ivan smacking the mouse. The mouse flies in the air, lands, gets up, walks back towards Ivan. (laughs) Ivan smacks the mouse, flies in the air, lands, gets up, walks back towards Ivan. Ivan is thrilled. His toy is alive. I have a serious sleepwalking disorder, so as I am watching this, I'm not even really sure it's happening. I'm thinking, I've had this dream before. My wife says, Mo, get the mouse, and she hands me a cup. I sit up, I walk towards the mouse, and the mouse walks towards me. (laughs) I put the cup over the mouse, I put a magazine under the cup, I take the cup into the backyard, and I put the mouse into the forest, where I can only assume that he walked into the mouth of a wolf. And from that day forward, we have called it Massachusetts. <laughs> I, I want to point out something really special that happened there at the end. A few minutes ago, I prefaced the story with a Massachusetts-based pun, Catsachusetts which we all agreed, as a group, is not funny. (laughs) Just moments ago. (laughs) I concluded the story with another Massachusetts-based pun (laughs) that was nearly identical. And that was Massachusetts. And we applaud it. <laughs> Which means, in a way, 
it's like we're married. Thank God for Jokes Tour, which Chicago Landians comes to the Chicago Theater in September. To everybody hearing us on the radio, there was a person in a mouse costume and roller skates in that story doing some funny stuff. To see the video of this entire show so you understand what people are laughing at, you will not be sorry, thisamericanlife.org. We have arrived at Act 3 of our show. Act 3, how do you slow this thing down? So this story is a follow-up to a story that we ran a couple years ago, which was a full episode of our show about one of our contributors, Josh Behrman, and his family. Uh, The setup is that Josh's parents got divorced when he was very young, and he and his brother Ethan grew up with their dad, who's a physicist, out in suburban Los Angeles. Josh's mom and his half-brother David lived very differently. They drifted around. They ended up in Florida. They were barely keeping it together. Josh's mom was an alcoholic. David was an aspiring rapper, getting acquainted with the court system. Together, they lived in this tiny condo in a retirement community in West Palm Beach called Century Village, where they did not belong. They were not retirees. And they would get into various kinds of jams and crises, and Josh would have to fly to Florida to try to help. He ended up spending a lot of time there. What you're about to hear is an experiment at creating a radio drama which has exactly the same structure as one of the documentary stories on our show. And so what's going to happen is the real Josh Behrman is going to narrate. And then instead of going to, you know, like quotes on tape or things like that, we have actors performing scenes that really happened. All of this really happened. Um, In those scenes, Josh is played by Josh Hamilton. His brother David is played by James Ransone. The story begins last year when real-life Josh found himself back in Florida with his two brothers. My mother's been in the hospital so much by now. She's figured out how to direct the paramedics, like emergency chauffeurs or something, to all the best facilities. Her room at Wellington Regional is big and bright. It's a corner room with big windows and a nice view, although she can't see it because right now she's connected to state-of-the-art equipment behind a curtain. When I walk in, my brother David is there already. Hey, man, oh, this whole thing it was like a fucked-up remix of The Night Before Christmas because it was The Night Before Christmas. Is this story going to be in rhyme? Oh, shut up. <laughs> David, what happens? You know how she gets around the holidays. I, mean, I, I thought that you and Ethan were going to bring her out to California. Oh, man, I don't know why we didn't. I think it was Ethan's schedule, or we probably just didn't try hard enough. Nah, nah. You, I mean, you never know when she's going to get all twisted like that. I, I wasn't even really around anyway. Where were you? I, I was with this girl from school, and this girl Tasha... I went over to her house early on Christmas Eve because they were having turkey dinner and everything. You know, like a normal family. I mean, I had to get out of Century Village. I was cooped up in there with Mom, and she was driving me crazy. So anyway, I'm at Tasha's, and Mom calls, and she sounds all drunk, right? And she's like, something happened to the car. Something? What kind of something? I don't know. That's what I said. (laughs) That's like something you would tell me. I know. And now I know how you feel. (laughs) Well... Whatever happened, the car got stuck, right? And I didn't have any way to get to her. So how did she get home? I think Peggy picked her up. By the time I got back to the condo the next day, she was was pretty deep in it. But it didn't seem like that big of a deal, really. And then then she woke up, and she was short of breath, so I was like... Wait, wait, wait. For how long? Tuesday, so for like a day. And you didn't call me sooner? 
dude, she's done this shit like a million times. I mean, she wasn't even that worried about it. Right? She didn't want me to ride in an ambulance with her. She was like, I'll see you later tonight, Dave. Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Snyder. I, are, you, are you the older brother? Yes. You have a medical power of attorney? Yes. Good. And who's Ethan? Uh, our other brother. He's also coming from he California. He has a medical power of attorney? Yes. Not him? No. Okay. Oh, uh, did your mother go to Cornell? Yes. Why? Uh, she told us. What else did she say? That she does not consume alcohol. <laughs> Those were her last words before going under. Soon enough, withdrawal told a very different story. The first time this happened was five years ago, when David called and told me he had to remit himself to the local sheriff's office for, quote, just a quick jail sentence. <laughs> oh, and mom's in the hospital. So I flew to Florida that next day and went straight to the ICU. And here's what happened that time. Well, looks like she'll never be the same again. What, are, are you the neurologist? Oh, I see we have a savvy medical consumer here. No. It's 2 a.m. I'm just the guy on rotation. So she scored low on the GOAT test, which measures brain function. She got a 62, probably permanently impaired. 62? Out, out of what? Uh, out of 100. Although, no one ever really scores 100. Oh, that's true. I took it myself for practice in nursing school. I got like an 80. Yeah, for a perfect score, you'd have to be like Superman or something. No, no, no. You know who could get 100? What's that guy? You know that guy who can do anything, including karate? Leonardo da Vinci. No, no, no. He's dead. He would score poorly. <laughs> no, the... Um, the speaker guy who can do anything. Jesus Christ, if I was him, I'd never forget anyone's name. Uh, he helps you realize your full potential. He's six and a half feet tall. Come on, ladies. He's uh, Tony Robbins? Yes. Exactly. That guy? That guy, he can score 100. So as the medical professionals discussed how awakening the giant within can totally boost your neurological scores. <laughs> One of the other nurses came and told me that earlier they'd had to restrain my mom because even though she was unconscious, she'd somehow managed to get a hold of cigarettes. <laughs> they caught her trying to light one in bed. We're not even sure where she got it, the nurse said. And that's when I knew my mother would be fine. Within days, she was sitting up, completely lucid, chatting up strangers, everyone's favorite. This time, things were bad enough that I called my brother Ethan. He can only come in a true emergency because he plays for the LA Philharmonic and he has a couple kids and his schedule's planned out months in advance. He took the red eye straight from playing at Disney Hall. Well, here we are again. <sighs> How you doing, man? Oh, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Hey, hey buddy. buddy. Good to see you. You holding up? Yeah, I'm working. Right. Nice tux. <laughs> yeah. thought my stage attire might help me look a little more official. she in there? Right now, Ethan is working on a giant Mahler retrospective. They're going to play all nine symphonies. It's something that's never been done before. Oh, uh, Ethan, this is Dr. Snyder. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Uh, 
Your mother had a heart attack. Uh, she has severe respiratory distress, nearly septic infection. If we can get her breathing on her own again, recovery is possible, but would take a long time. And then what? That's a good question. No, that is a good question. If she needs in-home care, I don't think David can do it. They can't keep the cable on. And if she doesn't make it, what then? Where is he going to live? Right? He can't stay at Century Village. I mean, it's a retirement community. With a perimeter, it's like, it's like a, a geriatric army base. <laughs> you know, I don't know how he hasn't gotten kicked out already. They're definitely on to him. And if they realize mom isn't coming back... I'm sure we're going to get calls any day now. Which one are you working on? Oh, the eighth. Oh, that's a, that's a, a big one. Yeah, right? it's a big one. has some really nice passages, though. Hey, Mom, I know you can hear me. We, we love you, and we need you. What's it about? Eternal life. It's David who says that mom would be happy that all three of her boys were together. And that's true. One of the few real senses of family I can recall is summers in the Midwest with her, when we were all children years ago. And we made ice cream and caught fireflies and roller skated, normal things like that. That's why David doesn't like being in the room much now, because he doesn't want to remember mom like this, trapped in so many tubes. It's like some jacked up Darth Vader shit, he says. And yet, he's the one who's been at her bedside the most. I can't bring myself to kiss her the way David does. I don't know why. After Ethan goes back to California, I stay with David and mom. Time is merciless in Florida, and especially merciless in the ICU. Days turn into weeks, and every afternoon, I pick up David, and we go to the hospital, talk to some doctors, wait, talk to some more doctors, and then maybe get dinner. Very little changes. Yo! Yo, yo I still want to show you that video that I was telling you about. Oh, yeah, right, okay. Uh, okay, hold up, hold up. In this very strange video, David's friend Sebastian, a completely grown man, is standing on some Florida crabgrass, breakdancing, robot style. And the music is a tinny Casio-sounding version of Furelise. What? What? <laughs> you know, he's pretty good. I know. But why is this happening? I, I don't even really know. I mean, we're all just hanging out there in the driveway like a bunch of us. Dude just starts doing a robot. <laughs> he does that sometimes, right? And there's one time he was doing it in my face for a really long time. For like a half hour. <laughs> no, no, I couldn't even believe it, man. <laughs> that he could keep it up that long? No, I'm more that I had to watch it for so long. Because <laughs> no, I was like, like kind of trapped there, right? And at first, I was trying not to look. And then I couldn't look away. <laughs> Let me see that again. Okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. It was like I was in denial at first, and then I accepted it. <laughs> like the stages of grief. Exactly. Exactly. And then I reached some kind of state of bliss where it was so awesome that I was almost in tears. 
Yeah, I'm not sure it's exactly the Kubler-Ross model. But. Well, they should add that one. The awesome state. It's nice spending time with David, but I'm also really worried about him. He's had a history with pills on and off over the years, and I suspect it's on again. One night while we're driving to dinner, David says, Oh, hey, Josh, can we stop over at the Victory? That's a gas station down on Okeechobee Boulevard, and Victory is a total misnomer for the kind of place where you pull in and just see a bunch of weird dudes crouching around the entrance, like it's a totally normal social spot. And David knows everyone here, which is weird, um, and I'm pretty sure something illicit is happening, but I don't want to ask, because I don't want to be the man with David, and he probably wouldn't tell me anyhow. Ah, it's nothing, David says. Sure, just your regular nighttime rendezvous in the parking lot of an off-brand gas station. David gets back in the car and he says, all right, I'm good but I'm not so sure. It's weird, but Mom and David are a team. They've been like a fucked up crazy team for a long time, but a team nonetheless, and they've taken care of each other. And the question on my mind is, if Mom doesn't make it, whether David will. All right, guys, she might destabilize immediately, but if she makes it, we'll load her up, get her over to the hospice facility right away. Yeah, I'm just, I'm a little concerned that, that she understands you. I mean, I think that she can hear you. Oh, I, I know this can be hard for you, an adjustment to end-of-life care. I mean, she's been. right there. Right. Uh, do you have any other questions? Well, yeah, I, I was wondering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering about Xanax. Uh, she, she's already getting out of van, which is also for anxiety. It's part of the hospice program. I, so I meant for me. Look, I'm not talking like a whole prescription or anything. I'm just asking if you can hook me up with like a couple, you know, for right now. I'm sorry, I can't accommodate that request. I'm going to go outside and smoke. This shit is getting a little too real for me right now. Well, the hospice is nice. Institutional, but warm. Like people are allowed to bring pets and stuff. One lady even brought her horse, the intake guy was very excited to tell us. I spend some time going through Mom's things. I find her address book, which is a mess, stuffed with post-its and scraps, bearing faded numbers in Mom's perfect cursive. How, I, how can we call her friends? I don't know who's who. I, I mean, no one visited her in the hospital. We should have called people sooner. She do not really have that many friends around anymore. And I'm telling you, she didn't want visitors at the hospital. Well, yes, but they might want to see her. Well, I don't have her friend's numbers. David, because I need you to help me figure this out. I got to take care of some shit right now. Where are, you, where are you going? Dude, you've been wandering in and out of here for weeks. Is it pills or what? No, nah, no. Nah, it's, it's Sebastian, right? He's got this other friend who called him. And, and so? That, that can wait. What is with all the weird, petty dramas? Half the time you're pacing around on your phone dealing with some crisis like Jimmy Carter at Camp David. Well, I got Peggy's number. Why didn't you tell me that before? You didn't ask. Dude! This is when you call people. When your mother is dying, you call her fucking friend. Yo, she can hear you. And I know that you wouldn't be all mad at me right now because you're mad at yourself or something, but this whole situation is fucked up. I accepted it a long time ago. I accept that it's fucked up. I've been here for six weeks. And I appreciate everything that you have done. But I've been here the whole time. 
When mom fell and knocked herself out or when I found her in the backyard or when I took her to get the last of her teeth removed, I wish it was different. But it is what it is. Mom is my best friend. And you, you're going to get to go home. And I'm going to be the one who's stranded here. Now I have to go. Sebastian locked himself in his garage somehow. <laughs> and you should call Peggy. But do that shit outside. I finally bring myself to start holding Mom's hand. And she rubs my palm. I think David's right. She knows. Each time, her grip gets a little stronger. I look in her terrified eyes and see my own. One night, just before I leave for the day, she takes my hand with both of hers. It's the biggest show of purpose in weeks. And for a second, I don't see the tubes, the room, the cracked lips, or her papery fingers. No one else is here. It's just us. The next morning, there was a message on my phone from the hospice before I got up. I know. They always say it was peaceful. And they'd made arrangements with the King David Cemetery for the next day. Damn, my stomach hurts. I can't tell if it's this funeral stuff or from that bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit I ate this morning. Hmm. I mean, I'm going to guess it's the former... I don't know, that shit was pretty gross. <laughs> you want to hear something funny? So, I was at home earlier today, right? Watching TV, just, just trying to take my mind off of things, you know? And then all of a sudden, TV goes black, and I'm like, oh shit, this is all I need right now. So I find this cable bill from before mom went in the hospital. It was like 15 bucks, but... She forgot to pay it, as usual, and the whole thing was like such a mom-type scenario, you know? I mean, it's just exactly the type of thing that she would have done. So when the TV went black, I, <laughs> I kind of thought it was like mom saying a little hello. <laughs> I'll be okay. I hope so. All right, let's get rolling. The sun is low on the horizon, beneath the clouds, bringing up steam from the grass. If you include the funeral director and the two Haitian dudes lounging on tombstones waiting to fill in the grave, there are only nine people listening. The scene feels like a frontier funeral, a clutch of poor souls standing around a pine box, like we should leave here in a covered wagon and keep heading west, and just be glad the devil's drink didn't bury us too. Joshua Berriman in the scenes. Josh Hamilton played him. James Ransone played his brother David. Matt Marks was Ethan and played the French horn. Our doctors were Bavesh Patel and Seth Barish, who also played the rabbi. Nurses were Carolyn Balmer and Zakia Young. Terry Kinney directed the story on the stage. So we'd been planning for months that Stephen Merritt was going to sing a song at this point in the show, 
And uh, we told Josh Bierman a couple weeks ago, and he was like, oh my God, that's crazy. My mom, his mom in the story, used to babysit for Stephen Merritt. When, uh, when Stephen, it's true, when Stephen was a kid growing up outside Boston, um, it, Josh Behrman's mom, Susan, babysat for her. So, please welcome Stephen Merritt. Merritt with Pinky Weitzman of Violin and Sam Duvall on cello. Stephen Merritt plays in a number of bands. His latest album is from the Magnetic Fields. It's called Love at the Bottom of the Sea. Act four. Bus, stop. 
This next story is um, something that comedian Sashir Zameda has been telling on stage in her stand-up act, and we asked her to adapt it into a full-on radio drama with actors and a sound man, like a classic radio drama. In fact, we have two sound men doing sound effects with a table full of props. Please welcome Sashir Zameda. A few years ago, I got into an accident on a shuttle bus. My friend Nicole and I rented a car, and we were dropping it off at LaGuardia Airport. We got onto the rental car company's shuttle bus to get taken to the cab stand to get a cab to go home, and we were the only two passengers on the bus. Hey, you two sure you want to sit back there? Because <laughs> I drive pretty crazy. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We heard him say this, but we didn't believe him. We should have believed him, because that's exactly what he did. He sped out of the parking lot and towards the airport, and Nicole and I were in the back, humoring him and playing up the wild ride. Woo! This is crazy! And then he hits the brakes really hard. Whoa! And then we hit another car in the intersection. Wait, you crazy! There's no seatbelts on the bus, so Nicole goes falling into the luggage carrier in front of her. I go flying into the air and headed towards the driver's seat. Now, if I was walking this distance, it would probably take me like 10 seconds, but because I'm flying through the air, it takes me like two. And I think now I understand why flying is the fastest way to travel. Ow! I'm lying on the floor, and my head is pounding. And I just think, wow, that was the most realistic example of foreshadowing I've ever seen. <laughs> Two seconds ago, this guy says, I drive crazy. And then he did. And then we got into an accident. I don't know why I thought anything different would happen. Hey, you okay? No, everything sucks. I want to go home. No, you can't go home. You hit your head. I know, but it's fine. No, it's not fine. We have to go to the hospital. Your face is like twice the size it should be. We get off the bus and the cops are already there. I see the car that we hit, and it's a tiny red car, and we T-boned it. Except the T is very disproportionate, where the top part of it's very tiny, and the bottom part's a huge bus. Did you ladies see what happened? No, we were sitting at the back of the bus, and we couldn't actually see the traffic. Okay. But the bus driver did it. But you just said you didn't see anything. Yeah, but he said, I drive crazy! Before the accident, and then he did drive crazy. A concept that was still blowing our minds. But you didn't see the accident. No, we didn't, but how could it have been the other guy's fault? We were on the bus that hit him. Also, can someone take my friend to the hospital? She hit her head real hard. Nicole was amazing in high-stress situations. Like the time when I told her I was pregnant. Um, yeah, so we didn't use a condom, and... I haven't had my period in a while. 
It's okay. This is fine. Okay? I support whatever you want. I don't know what I'm supposed to tell my family. Oh, listen, I will go with you to the clinic, or if you don't want me to, whatever you want. Just, I can't have a kid right now. No, 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 I know. Come here. It's going to be okay. I love you. Okay? Okay. I love you. All right. Okay? Okay. Um, I, I really appreciate this, and... April Fools! What the fuck? What the fuck is wrong with you? See, she's a great friend. And the perfect person to have for this stupid bus accident. We get onto an ambulance and head towards the hospital, and the driver of the other car is already there, and he's much chattier than most would be after getting into a serious accident like this. So, you guys were on that bus? Oh, uh, yes, we were. It was, it was a rental company bus. Did you rent a car? Uh, yeah, we rented a car to go to Boston. Oh, cool. What was going on in Boston? Um, we were there for a festival. What kind? A festival? A comedy festival. Wow. So, you're a comedian? Yes. Does that mean you're a comedian, too? Don't talk to me. <laughs> I don't know why I just didn't do that. <laughs> Telling a person who's not a comedian that you're a comedian is never good, because the conversation that follows is always terrible. So you were up in Boston. Did you make any jokes about baked beans? They love those up there. <laughs> no, I didn't make any jokes about baked beans. Listen, next time you're in Boston, you say, park the car, it'll kill. It will kill. You can have that one. That one's yours. You can have All that right. for free. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop talking now because my head really hurts. I get it. It's not a joke. I get it. <laughs> I don't want to say the name of the hospital that we went to because someone here in the audience may actually work there, but we went to Elmhurst Hospital and... <laughs> It was the dirtiest hospital I've ever been to in my life. There were Toblerone wrappers on stretcher beds and loose muffins on the floor. <laughs> Just like unwrapped, unexplained, whole muffins. I'm left with Nicole in the waiting room, and we're waiting and waiting. Nicole's actually really scared of what would happen to me if I fell asleep, so she makes it her job to make sure I stay awake. Mm. Sashir. Yeah. Sashir. Mm -hmm. Sashir. Yeah. You see that doctor over there? Uh-huh. Would you fuck him? <laughs> you said he's a doctor, right? Yeah. So probably, yeah. Sashir. <laughs> yeah. Sashir. Mm -hmm. Sashir. 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 Sashir, 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 Sashir. Are you hungry? Always. You want a muffin? Always. <laughs> Go get that muffin. Get that muffin. Go 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 get that muffin. You got that muffin. Oh no! No, 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 no. That's a dirty muffin. Put that muffin down. 
Oh, no. Maybe eat that candy off the chair. Okay. There's nothing in here. Oh, no. The hot doctor must have eaten it all. <laughs> he loves chocolate. Oh. Does that mean he'll love me? You're a big old chocolate woman, so yes. But you gotta stay awake. Doctors hate sleepy bitches. Yeah. I don't want to be a sleepy bitch. Because you know what they say about sleepy bitches. What? They too tired. Five hours pass and I still haven't gotten seen. Excuse me, do you know how much longer before I get seen? What do you need to be seen for? I was just in a car accident. I need someone to check my head. Oh, I didn't know you were in a car accident. We thought you were waiting on somebody. You look fine. But I hurt. Eventually, I get moved to the CAT scan area, and the guy running the scan looks like he's 12 years old, and he's, like, not putting me at ease. <laughs> Okay, so, what happened to you? I was just in a car accident. Oh, I couldn't tell. You look fine. That's what I hear. Whoa! Cool gold shoes! Did you spray paint those yourself? I did. That's so cool! I want to get this one pair of sneakers with this design okay, that has... Okay, can you just scan me, please? He finally scans me. And then I wait a while for the results. You're fine. <laughs> Every person involved with this accident was awful. Except for Nicole. She was the best part of this whole thing. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to present to you the last best person in New York State, Nicole Byer. <laughs> back and says that there's one just person, one righteous person. I will not destroy the world. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> I will, okay, so I will just not... Hey, uh, radio listeners, internet listeners, what's happening uh, now on stage is that people are running on, giving Nicole flowers and cheering her. Okay, that's, that's enough. That's, all right. I still ha I hit my head really hard in the accident. Did you... <laughs> okay, well... Thanks a lot for listening to my story. There was some artistic license taken with actual dialogue. The dialogue in that story at the hospital was not reported verbatim. We contacted Elmhurst Hospital about the conditions this year saw, asked for a comment. Spokesperson said she'd get back to us this Wednesday. Didn't get around to it. We reached out a few more times, and we never heard back. Sashir Zameda with Nicole Byer, Chris Gethard, Frank Garcia-Hale, Tony Ward, Zakia Young, Seth Barish, and 12-year-old Matthew Mindler as the CAT scan guy. So our program is produced today by myself with Robin Semian and Robert Sines DeViteri, with our senior producer Julie Snyder, Allison Davis, and Elise Bergerson, as well as Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sean Cole, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Joffe Walt, Sarah Koenig, Miki Meek, Jonathan Menhivar, Brian Reed, Alyssa Ship, Nancy Updike. 
Seth Lind is our operations director. Emily Condon is our production manager. Adrian Mathewitz runs our website. Research help from Michelle Harris and Julie Beer. Some music in today's show by Roger Neal. Thanks to Laura Coburn. Thanks to all the theater professionals who took their time out from their day jobs to be here with us for a week. And to be here today, singers, actors, dancers, writers, composers, directors, and some actual famous people. And especially thanks to the core production team led by Robert Sines de Bateri, Christine Jones, set designer, Andrea Lauer, costume design, Mark Barton, lighting design, Nevin Steinberg, sound design, Anne McPherson, stage manager, the BAM crew. They all had to use incredible, I have to say, cunning and craft to get a show this complicated into a theater and tech it in in one day. We got here this morning. Our website, where you can see everything that was on today's show, the sets, the costumes, the dancing, and like, seriously, half an hour of incredible material that was simply too long to include on the radio, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Thanks, as always to our show's co-founder, Tori Malatia. I will never forget the crazy birthday party where he ate slice after slice of German chocolate cake. And we kept telling him, Tori, stop with the German chocolate cake. Stop it. You're going to make yourself sick. And we were right. He made himself sick. He was green and sick. And then couldn't stop saying, Ich brauche Hilfe. Können Sie mir helfen? I'm our glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. PRI Public Radio International.